This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 19th, 2023. I'm Scott Delonaboe. And I'm Ian Bushfield. My throat is better. It was not great last night, it was not great this morning, but it is fine right now. I may be muting myself at random times, though, to clear my throat. I'm doing much better than my baby, who is a miserable wreck. I don't know what disease went through our house. It's unpleasant. We tested negative on COVID, but who knows if tests work anymore. Anyway, I'm back. Welcome back. And uh, once again, thanks to Stuart for filling in. Yeah, always good to hear his voice on the show. On today's show, we're going to be talking about housing again. We have more planks coming out from David Eby, as well greenhouse gas emissions. We don't actually get to learn a lot because the courts say we don't have to. Accountability is just a thing you write on the name of a piece of law. Also, alcohol is bad for you. Breaking news as we... Uh, I was going to have a beer tonight, but I'm still recovering from my cold. And apparently it's going to kill me if I drink. So, uh, And speaking of killing you, tanks, we're going to give more to Ukraine, but we don't actually have that many. We'll we'll talk about what's going on there. We're thinking about the tanks. <laughs> we have a plan to think about doing something to help. If you want to help this show, patreon.com slash politicoast. Give us some money, help us grow the show, help us grow our listenership, help us just reach more audiences and talk more about BC politics. I'm on parental leave now. My mind is just like, uh, I like started a couple hours ago. My mind's just, uh, you know, I don't even know. Let's, let's talk BC politics. The, I, I hesitate to call this big, big news, but it was kind of the only story out of the province this it's week. In, like it's yeah, not something super flashy, but one of those, just kind of a little unsexy fitzes that help everything run smoother and will pay dividends in probably a couple of years time, but not right away. Yeah, this is a new permitting strategy being set up and rolled out fairly quickly from the premier's office and the housing ministry. And I think the land wars, Nathan Cullen's ministry was also involved. This is... Uh, he's the lead minister. Yeah, so this is going to be a hub for all of the provincial permits and authorizations. The idea being rather than go to the Ministry of Environment, the Ministry of Transportation, the Ministry of Heritage Inspections, whoever deals with that, and get approval to build from all of those, you can just go to the permit Permitting Strategy for Housing office and speak to one of their soon-to-be-hired 42 new positions and fill out Maybe not one piece of paper, but at least one set of papers with one point of contact. It's just simplifying the paperwork in a way that just makes sense and is good. Yeah, permitting is one of the uh, issues that kind of gets in the way of actually building the housing we need here. And just getting that to run a lot smoother would be great. It doesn't solve the... Uh, Problems with local municipalities, the city of Vancouver has a famously difficult 
process to navigate and one that is time consuming. It doesn't really fit to that, but uh, for places that need to pull provincial permits, this will make it a lot quicker, easier, uh, and bring it down from the uh, two years that the press release notes is a typical processing time for everything. I think the big challenge here is it's limited in scope to those places where the primary set of permits come from the province. As far as I could read between the lines from the press release and some of the coverage, that's things like university endowment lands, rural areas, uh, and possibly some bits in urban municipalities. But this is generally not going to do anything for Metro Van or the Capital Region or any of the major urban areas. That's, like you said, on the cities themselves. Hopefully, this is a model, though, and expertise that can help push municipalities to adopt similar systems. I think the mayor of the city of North Vancouver was quoted in this saying, this is a great model, we're trying to do similar things. So it is it is recognized that these hubs are a better approach than, you know, a million rules in a million places. This isn't even about getting rid of rules, it's just streamlining them for the most part. Start with 42 full-time positions, possibly increasing to 203. So well, it's a job rules. creation program to manage bureaucracy. Love democracy. The uh, bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. Yeah, in a good way, though. Like I said, this isn't going to get houses built. It doesn't. It does help get the government out of the way of some of the housing. But in the short midterm, we still need more bigger things to come. There's some things happening at City of Vancouver when I eventually get around to talking with Matthew again. We'll talk about some of that. But for now, David E.B., we're still looking for more. We're looking for a lot more, bud. That was the Liberals' main critique is that, okay, you're checking one of 30-plus items on the uh, housing supply strategy. Where's the rest? Which, you know, is both not unreasonable but also probably a sign that this is going to be a pretty uncontroversial thing if the uh, only response is why not more it's hard to disagree with making paperwork simpler <laughs> unless the pain is the point but uh moving on someone who is going to be disappointed about the bureaucracy is the Sierra Club of BC and EcoJustice. They had sued the province in court and they managed to actually get it before a judge, which was a, the only thing they can claim as a victory in this case, uh, that the Climate Change Accountability Act uh, lacked accountability. And they sued the province saying, you are not giving enough data that you have said you are required to give under your only law to prove that you're going to meet the targets you have set for yourself. The Climate Change Accountability Act was a great idea in terms of, you know, setting detailed emission targets and reporting requirements. And the environmental group's basic challenge was they haven't met those, they haven't reported enough for us to know whether they're meeting those requirements. Yeah, so they report, uh reported on the 2030 uh, targets, uh, but didn't include information in the latest report on 2025, 2040, and 2050. The ministry argued that uh, these reports were best left to the legislature because that's where they get tabled and political accountability in the ledge rather than the courts would be the right venue. As you mentioned, uh, they didn't succeed with that line of argument. Uh, but they also 
argued that the text of the law doesn't require them to uh, provide information on those specific years and that admitting such a detail is within the minister's reasonable discretion, which is what the judge found, that if the act doesn't say you have to tell them that information, they don't actually have to tell them that information. Yeah, the government's big argument was they dropped the clean BC strategy and the roadmap to 2030 and that gets most and that's how they justify the 2030 targets but like most people who are watching the state of climate change it feels really tough to tell if those are honest numbers or realistic numbers and so i get the need for projections and accounting but like you said the act itself i guess neither of us have probably read it in the detail that justice bazran or the lawyers of the government and Sierra Club have read it, I guess only requires it give the current year's greenhouse gas emissions and the two subsequent years. So looking forward two years. So actually this year they would have the 2025 numbers conveniently, but we won't know how we're doing in 2040. Yes, when they table. Yeah, so they're uh, either just considering whether or not to appeal this, and they're also putting out a call to strengthen the legislation, which I don't think is going to happen. Like, Governments don't like being more transparent than they have to be, and it's not a coincidence that uh, a lot of the transparency legislation tends to come in the first year or two. Uh, in this case, it was a 2018 law, so they were still new and still annoyed about all the untransparent things the last government did. But uh, at this point, the likelihood that... Uh, we're going to voluntarily increase uh, the legislative requirements for transparency is pretty slim. This is one of those real, like, n there's no winning for the government in this case. Like, they won in the court in that they don't have to disclose things. But in the court of public opinion, they basically have just said, haha, we don't have to tell you how we're doing on our road to solve climate change, which doesn't doesn't sell very yeah, well. Yeah, but like doesn't I mean it doesn't sell super well, but it's also not going to be something that's really going to hurt them in the long run. Um most people don't look through the climate accountability act reports and get disappointed they aren't thorough enough. Um and if that's the the type of people who do are measured in the dozens. And they're probably highly informed voters who aren't who are going to be making up their mind on that and a bunch of other stuff in conjunction. And the vast, vast majority of everyone else who's voting is not even going to remember that there was this case or this outcome uh, in a couple of years' time when we go. To the yeah, polls. I think the most interesting part of this case is that like jurisdiction question, and that's a very like nerdy lawyer question about like is this the kind of thing that can get hashed out of the courts or like the province argued that it should be a matter of political accountability in the legislature and i think what this turns on is just that the legislature passed an act that said it had to be accountable and that gave the courts in and that might be a discouragement for future governments on introducing accountability acts like this now like you said, maybe that's just something naive, optimistic governments will do in their first year or two when they're trying to virtue signal their difference from the previous guys. 
Sure. Maybe yeah. virtues. I, I would be a little more generous and say like the things that annoyed them in opposition, they're going to try and fit a few of them. But probably not that many and their enthusiasm is going to wane fairly quickly on that. Well, as we're talking about climate change, let's talk about LNG Canada, who is working on a big LNG terminal in northern British Columbia. This will be expected to begin shipments in 2025. They have announced that there aren't enough transmission lines to power this terminal with clean BC Hydro hydroelectric energy. So they're going to put, I think it's diesel generators on site and natural gas. Uh, they're going natural to use... gas turbines. Sure, yeah. Which made sense. If it's a natural gas facility, you have plenty of natural gas on that. And they're also cleaner and probably uh, better to run on that. Um, so yeah, like not ideal. Uh, the This is for phase two of the project uh, that they're going to be doing. And the dis from what the reporting in the globe says, this they are looking to phase that out and replace it with electric uh, systems once the transmission lines are in place. But that specific thing is going to be up to the province somewhat, and it's not entirely clear when that is. And yeah, in the meantime, it's going to uh, come with a lot more emissions because one thing about LNG is it takes a fair bit of energy to uh add that l to everything and liquefy it it half feels like a bluff like a pressure of hey bc hydro you need to get those power lines out here faster or else we're going to embarrass the province by emitting more greenhouse gases and shooting the world in the foot more yeah that I do have to wonder a little bit, because the capital cost of switching after you've already installed a gas system has got to be fairly high, particularly because electric uh, is a little higher operations cost. But too. then they don't have to burn their so, yeah, product. It, right, but that's accounted for in the operations cost differences. Um, but yeah, it's... I, I could see this being a little bit of a push on that, but... Uh, not ideal. We need to get better at uh, building things quickly in this province. So, uh, you know, when one project's going, it can rely on other projects to be complete in the appropriate time, like uh, adding high, the high voltage sure, transmission sure. lines. Uh, I think a lot of people would argue this kind of also is a good reminder that LNG is still around and. Well, LNG Canada is claiming this will be the have the lowest emissions intensity of any LNG port terminal uh, system in the world. That's just a way of saying they're going to be less inefficient while still burning more and more fossil fuels. And so I, you know, there have been a lot of longstanding critiques against BC's continued push to LNG even as it tries to meet climate targets and reconciling those numbers has never been clearly set out and apparently we don't have to clearly set it out under the Climate Accountability Act so it's going to be an albatross that kind of hangs around the NDP's greener side as we head towards the next election. Mm -hmm.
Well, just burning through our episode tonight because apparently we don't have a lot to talk about. Let's jump into our final couple quick takes. Let's start with the big news that it's time to put cancer warning labels on alcohol, according to the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. Canada's new guidance on alcohol and health is out from that centre. This is a big study and report funded by Health Canada and really just meant to lead the country's health approach on alcohol use. And we have gone almost prohibitionist in it. They are not recommending prohibition because we know that doesn't work, but they're at the point where it's like, if you're drinking, you're probably going to die faster. And so let's just remind everyone that this is a carcinogenic substance that will cause you to be violent and uh, die soon from all kinds of disease and you'll be miserable. So don't drink. What was your takeaway from the reporting on this, Scott? Um, a little mixed, to be honest. Like, nobody, I think, was under the impression that drinking was good for you, uh, it's particularly in larger amounts. They're being, like, back and forth, you know, you know, like the every other week there's a new, oh, red wine is good, red wine is bad study a bit. And yeah, it's not a shock that uh, on the bad side of the column includes cancer. I, I'm not sure there is a huge kind of lack of awareness of potential health problems when it comes to the alcohol. I think what's most shocking all. here is that the previous guidance was done in 2011, and that guidance said the safe level of drinking was up to 15 drinks a week for men and 10 for women to reduce long-term health risks. And these are standard amounts of drinks. So like a can of beer, a small glass of wine, uh, one shot kind of thing. And now they've gone to two or more is risky. So that's a massive reduction in what is considered safe from honestly, 15 drinks a week is quite a few thinking about it like i've definitely had the weeks like that in undergrad i'm not gonna lie uh but i didn't consider that healthy behavior yeah that was probably pushing it a bit for sure and so it's it's just a big pendulum swing um what's interesting in my reading of the reporting is i've done a lot of work on science communication i worked at sense about science in the uk and we tried to do understanding risk and all of these kind of things and you get Reports like this that talk a lot about relative risk, you know, each drink you have increases your relative risk of pancreatic cancer, of liver disease, of breast cancer in women, and so forth. But that doesn't tell you what it actually increases from and to, just that there is an increase. And so we did dig into the actual guidance itself, and it's buried way in there. Um, they have a summary t chart, a little graph, way down page like 30-ish, figure three. The lifetime risk of a year of life lost attributed to alcohol at varying levels of alcohol intake. And these are kind of graphs going from zero up to 2,500 because this is per 1,000 people. So that would be 25 years lost. If you're drinking 35 drinks a week, don't drink 35 drinks a week things get real bad for you up there but in the range of like zero to five drinks a week there's a lot of uncertainty in some cases there's a possibility it's increasing years of life 
and making people live longer. I'm not going to make that claim, but it's to say any past two causes problems feels like they're pushing the data a bit now. Yeah, like kind of the selecting one specific set of of health outcomes, cancer in this case. And and where the increases in the specific kinds of cancer aren't necessarily like absolutely big. Like it might be like a 15% increase if you go to three or four drinks a week, but that's not necessarily saying like in the same way that smoking caused massive increases in lung cancer this causes minor increases. On a societal level, this matters, right? On a societal level, we want fewer people to have cancer. But on an individual level, if you have, I would even say like one to five drinks a week, you're probably still in a fairly safe zone. Sure, if you're super focused on your health, reduce it a bit. It doesn't hurt. It seems, and they even flag there are some benefits to not drinking like better sleep and lower stress. But it's a very interesting kind of realm of public health health advice. Yeah, I kind of see it a little bit like skiing. I ski. It's a sport that has a certain level of risk to it and probably higher than a lot of them. But, you know, balanced out against uh, some some benefits, whether it's uh, get to enjoy in skiing or uh, socializing in a bar with friends, it's kind of balances out and as long as you're uh not it doing it in a particular risky way it's probably going to be okay or at least balance on on net yeah and one of the things that came up when it. i've done my past work on you know public discussions of, around risk in the science is around you know these questions around drinking well pregnant and or breastfeeding and the evidence is there's no evidence to say it's safe that at any level but then there's this question of how do you communicate that in a way that's effective because sometimes what you do when you say it's not safe to have a single drink is you discourage people from self-reporting or you encourage them to engage in riskier like surreptitious behavior or they think well i had one i may as well have four and that's obviously not good but people don't always understand and so i know in britain there was some time of like, maybe it's better to say you could have one drink every once in a while if you're pregnant, but best to not. And there was a big debate about, you know, what's, what's the best approach here? And I don't remember what the best answer is, and I don't have a good answer. Obviously, the science is don't drink when you're pregnant or breastfeeding. But how do you communicate that in the best way to make sure people don't? Yeah, and that's kind of the other thing that really crossed my mind was the communications aspect of this. Because how you present this to people is going to definitely have an impact, just like you said. And uh, the thing that immediately came to mind was California's Prop 65. I'm not sure if you've ever come across this, but uh, usually goes in some form of warning. Literally anything has been known to the state of California to cause cancer. And like when I was in the States a month ago, I came across like a couple of those just transiting through uh, San Francisco airport for like in the span of a couple hours. And, you know, if it's becomes omnipresent and just becomes part of the background noise and everything, does it end up, uh, 
ultimately becoming either ineffectual or just people ignored and aren't getting um health advice at all like if everything causes cancer do you really change your behavior or do you just kind of shrug and go on and that kind of brings to the main uh recommendation here which is putting mandatory labeling of alcoholic beverages uh to say that they are uh potentially cancerous or otherwise you know bringing some of these conclusions onto labels and at very least i think we could both agree that defining a standard drink on the bottles would be helpful um but then beyond that what else should a mandatory label say is going to be quite debatable um what they point to that's very interesting is a study that was done in the Yukon. It was aborted following industry presser, pressure, um, but it found that uh, labeling in Yukon did reduce uh, drinking in areas where the labels were present versus comparable areas in the Yukon that didn't have labeling, mandatory labeling. So thankfully, we don't have labels on everything that's a carcinogen because most things are to some extent but i also like i really do want to not downplay that like alcohol is serious and in terms of like all of the drugs we've talked about both legal and illegal alcohol is like one of the more dangerous ones actually (laughs) especially to society at the rates we use it so yeah at this point still a recommendation to include labels i don't believe the government's actually taking a stance yet on whether or not they're gonna follow through on it so we'll uh just have to keep our eye out for yeah that. that's where i think the interesting political question will be is like what happens from here because like cbc quotes lisa mary Barron from the ndp and nanaimo saying she thinks labeling could be useful because she didn't know it was a class one carcinogen and that's what really like annoyed me when i read this story is like there's a lot of things that are class one carcinogens or cla- and i think it's class two that bothers me more but that doesn't tell you a lot other than there's evidence around it linking it to alcohol it doesn't tell you how much it's going to increase your risks uh i said alcohol i meant cancer so you know does the does this become a culture war issue i could see that happening it will make me cry i think so yeah uh there's already a little bit of sign that that's going to be coming the uh, the response has not been universally positive to this report. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. No egghead and no bureaucrat egghead's going to tell me what I can and can't drink. I I mean it is still less stupid than the gas stove controversy. That's in the true. US, so uh, don't have yeah. a gas stove either. Those are bad for you. Very bad for you. <laughs> anyway, maybe you'll have warning labor labels on your next can of beer. But probably not. It did get a lot of international attention because these are pretty out there compared to most countries. There are a few countries that have similar level recommendations of next to none. But a lot of countries have somewhere in between where we have gone and where we were. But let's close the show by talking about tanks, what Ukraine wants, what Canada could do and has done. Yeah. So there's been a couple uh, news stories in the past week about uh, what we will and will not be providing to Ukraine and what uh, they are interested in us providing. 
so first up, there was a story uh, earlier this week that uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand has announced that we will be donating 200 armored personnel carriers. Uh, so these are basically wheeled armored vehicles capable of withstanding light small arms fire but uh you know not giant huge uh bits of uh armor uh so they're provided by a uh company based out of uh mississauga ontario and will be uh sent at a cost of 90 million dollars uh for that uh and then additionally there's reporting a little later this week that uh Ukraine is interested in Canada providing some of our Leopard 2 tanks. Now, this has been a bit of an ongoing discussion across NATO uh, with other countries looking to provide tanks. Britain announced their intention to uh, send their Challenger 3 tanks. That's their main battle tank. Poland is anxious to send the Leopards they have and are kind of in a bit of a spat with Germany over it at the moment. Uh, And then we are, and then Ukraine also indicated that they would be interested in acquiring some of our Leopard 2s. No decision has been made. And uh, just today, uh, Justin Trudeau said that, uh, that we're not there yet for the Leopard 2s. But we'll be provi- uh, we're here to provide Ukraine with what it needs so they can beat Russia. Basically, not committing to anything on that. It's in a way weird that Canada has tanks in terms of our defensive needs. Tanks don't make a lot of sense since we're unlikely to face a land invasion ever, unless we like really piss the United States off or someone is not. But we did spend. Uh, decades with uh, forces in uh, Germany prepared to uh, defend our allies, and those forces did include sure. tanks. So, yeah, I mean, like a lot of Canadian military equipment, some of it has uses to protect Canada's domestic uh, territory, and uh, but those are generally... Uh, most of the time going to be naval or air assets, whereas the army's a little more built around expeditionary It's an missions. imperialist force. <laughs> imperialist and expeditionary no. are not the same <laughs> thing. Unless you, unless you think liberating Europe was an imperialist project by Canada during World War II, which would be stretching things. Oh, we haven't needed to liberate. To say the least. Europe for quite a while, but it turns out we did have to do it again now. Well, we're kind of in the process of helping people do we that just now. Aren't directly at war. We're just giving all of the tools. At what point in warfare does like it make a difference whether Canadian troops are there? If like and this kind of applies to all the countries that are giving things to Ukraine. Like obviously Russia's not going to attack everyone else because they don't want to, so I guess it it's a moot point. But like, if everyone's just funneling all their money and resources into Ukraine to fight Russia, which makes sense, is it not just like Russia is fighting America right now? They're fighting American tanks, fighting well, I mean, German tanks. 
like the Soviets put uh, resources into helping the North Koreans and the North Vietnamese in their respective wars. I don't think anyone considered that the case of um, the Soviets being at war with the other countries as a result of that like you can provide aid to to friendly countries without necessarily oh yeah it's a it's a mutually assured like those wars no we're all okay with this deal it's a, but the deal also doesn't really make sense is all i'm saying it only makes sense because no one wants to like have open conflict among the entire world and i'm on that side too but at some point it also doesn't make sense uh, welcome to international relations. Anyway, it does look like Ukraine is very eager to retake a lot of territory and potent like the number of tanks they are seeking and getting really screams to me like they want a full offensive against Russia. I've heard talk of retaking Crimea uh, coming back onto the table, which is an ambitious push for Ukraine. Um I think it's fairly unlikely they retake Crimea, particularly in the short to medium term. But being able to credibly threaten Crimea does increase Ukraine's bargaining position in any eventual peace talks. Um, And yeah, there's still a lot of territory within Ukraine that uh, excluding Crimea that is Russian held at the moment and would Ukraine is eager to get back and yeah to do that they need tanks they need infantry fighting vehicles they need a whole range of uh kit to help them out with that and yeah tanks would be part of it so the uh 200 uh armed personnel carriers are useful not probably as useful as sending labs would be but uh would be helpful so yeah um I don't know, based on things to date, like generally how things have played out with Ukrainian asks and then the various allies discussing it and eventually settling on providing most of the or a decent chunk of the aid they asked for. I think it's fairly likely that Germany is probably eventually going to relent on the on sending the German manufactured leopard tanks. And that they will be joining the uh, the British challengers in Ukraine at some point soon. And uh, yeah, also uh, probably worthwhile noting that in the initial days, there were kind of discussions about whether or not tanks were obsolete. And I think at this point, we can fairly safely say that... Uh, well, the tank may one day be obsolete. It's not there yet, as the uh, battlefield utility is still pretty clear if Ukraine's uh, asking for them. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.